HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode of The Grape Nation is brought to you by Vivino. Discover and buy wines wherever you are. Visit vivino.com backslash heritage to stock up. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, HRN's weekly food news roundup. This week, we're celebrating Pride. We speak to the bakers who created a custom wedding cake for Charlie Craig and David Mullins, the couple behind the Masterpiece Cake Shop Supreme Court case. We felt that what happened to Charlie and David was an absolute injustice. Kat Johnson addresses the controversy surrounding Anthony Porosky, Queer Eye's food and wine expert. Many viewers thought these recipes were unsophisticated. And finally, Hannah Forden speaks with nutrition educator Leah Kurtz about the relationship between veganism and queer identity. It's an interesting way in which food can challenge invisible value systems even greater than sexuality does. Listen to Meat and Three, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E this week, and celebrate Pride with HRN. Available on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite listening apps. To the Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guests are Sharon Harris and Beth Monbenz. We'll talk to Sharon and Beth about wine, women in wine, and a lot more. For our weekly wine sip, we'll taste a Greek wine with Beth in the studio. I'm your host, Sam Ben Ruby. Stay with us for the Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. Sharon Harris is the proprietor of Rare Cat Wines in Napa, California. She is a winemaker and entrepreneur committed to empowering women, using wine as a tool to elevate women and promote diversity. She just completed a 23-city tour preaching these issues. Beth Von Benz is a wine consultant, sommelier, and worked in wine retail. Beth has had a long career in wine in New York City at some of the finest restaurants, including Milos, Judson Grill, the U.S. Open, and Porterhouse. Beth, 
Beth was slinging wine before becoming a sommelier was a thing. We'll talk to Sharon first. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Sharon. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely thrilled to be here in New York. Just, just for a little background, Sharon is based out of um, Napa and in France. But we met up in New York, and we're sitting down at Marta. And I wanted to ask Sharon a bunch of things about why she's here. But first, Sharon, give our listeners a little background. Um, spend a few minutes telling me about your journey in life and wine that got you really to two places, Rare Cat. And one of the reasons I really wanted you here is, you know, your support of empowering women through wine. Absolutely. So let's buzz through this. There's a lot to do. There's a lot to do. So it, I do not come from a wine family. Um, so my path to discovering and loving wine is from a path because I wanted to speak French from a very, very young age. It's funny, last night at a major wine event, I was taking, I really think the influences of why I loved and wanted to speak French was possibly because of uh, nursery rhyme, Frère Jacques, and possibly because of Pepe Le Pew, one of my favorite okay. cartoons. So I'm pretty sure I'm in the wine industry because of a skunk and a nursery okay. rhyme. Okay, probably did, a first. Probably a first, <laughs> yeah, I think it's unique. Um, but I, I did try to graduate early from high school. That didn't go well for me to move to France. So when I was at UCLA my junior year abroad, I applied and got accepted to a program to spend a junior year abroad in France. Uh, to Where? be honest, I thought it was going to be Paris. At the time, I don't think I had a perspective that anything existed outside of Paris. And, of course, I got sent to Bordeaux. Wow. And at the time, I asked a great friend of mine, what did they do in Bordeaux? And the answer was, I think they make wine there. So I show up to, <laughs> to Bordeaux, 1983, 20 years old, with, I would say, zero knowledge of wine. And my first great epiphany to wine was literally November 1983, knocking on the door of Aubryon and spending the day with Monsieur Donmas. Top of the game. Top of the game. Zero to top of the game. And literally, um, that was it. It just hook, line, and sinker fell in love with wine. I got to taste the famous 82 out of the barrel, a 66 that he had opened. I didn't understand how the components got into the wine, but that was it. And fell in love with the French culture, with French food, with French wine. Certainly that joie de vivre lifestyle of coming to the table, sharing wine, building community. And I think that's been an influence now. Well, it changed my life. So you did that junior year, you came back, you finished school? I did. I actually graduated top of my class in international economics. A little plug there. A little plug. (laughs) Because I took it, instead of taking the banking jobs, I took a one-way ticket back to France. And I worked in a two-star restaurant underneath the North African stagiaire. So it was so low, they hadn't invented the level And I worked in a French kitchen, and I really understood. I, you know, I learned a tremendous about cooking and just sourcing of food and the hierarchy. And uh, and actually, I learned quite a lot of um, how to speak French. Good background. Not, not always great French, but nonetheless, a lot of French. <laughs> so then, what happens? Then I ran out of money. Okay. Yeah, sometimes it practical. happens. Practical. Right. And I had to um, I had to come back, and I got jobs in technology. I ran a um, Worked for a tech publishing company, went back, got an MBA in international marketing. My whole focus was always international, trying to figure out how I could get back to France. 
um, ran an international division for a tech publishing company, went to an, a search engine company in the mid-90s. This is before tech really blew up too, right? Well, it was, but the tech um, the search engine company I worked for, Inc. to me, did go from zero to $36 billion. Jeez. So I was VP of sales at that company. And Jesus. so that allowed, you know, allowed me to follow my passion, which had always been wine. And it was interesting through that kind of the, that career path as I was often the only woman at the table. This is early tech. Internationally, no business is done in a conference room. It is always done outside of a conference room through business dinners. And it was really profoundly interesting because I was an outlier. I was a woman. I didn't look like anyone else at the table. But I was also a woman who knew a lot about wine and had a deep passion for wine. So it allowed me to be invited to places that were often not available, men's clubs, dinner tables. I controlled the wine list. I ordered the wines. And all of a sudden, I had this escalated, this incredible career. And I have to say, wine was a big part of getting me to the table. But all of those subconscious biases that happen when you know how to order wine, head of the table, control the table, talk about wines, cultural currency. And it was really interesting. You're and the man, even though was, you're the woman. That's right. That's, that's right. Very cool. And people do business with people they like and trust. And it was one of those right. components of connecting with across gender, across culture. It was something that allowed me to be able to be accepted at a table because I could talk about wine. So that's the business yeah, world. Yes. You eventually get out of that and morph purely into wine. Talk to me about when, where, and how. So, I mean, I was fortunate to be able to take some money out of a tech, um, out of tech and buy a couple other wineries. I bought property and planted vineyards in 2000 in Napa Valley. And, and really then I would say that was the start of the journey because then I returned back to the University of Wait, Bordeaux. what does that mean? You, so you made money in the business world. Yeah. You were able to fund your wine passion. You bought property or? Correct. I bought a property and planted and vineyards planted in 2000. And you planted 2000? Yeah, Hillside Vineyards in Calistoga. Okay. I bought into another winery, a majority share of another winery, and eventually bought a second property up in Calistoga. Had partners on those prop, uh, on those those with those wineries. But probably the biggest change is I went back and I studied winemaking from 2004 to 2006 at the University of Bordeaux. And after that, I came, returned directly back to St. Helena and I started Rare Cat in 2008. Our first vintage was the 2009 vintage. So in 2004, what drove you to the idea that I got to get back to... France and you have kids and everything now, a family. Kids You're not running on the fly here. What? That's a yeah. bold, big step. Was a, it was a huge, bold step. It, I had a five and seven year old in tow, <laughs> moved to Bordeaux. Um, it was uh, it was a big step. I think there was a couple of compelling reasons. I think, you know, having my children live outside of the U.S. and, and experience another culture is, I use the word profound too often, but it was a <laughs> profound experience. You know, for it them, it changed who they were. They learned French, but they also understood what it was like to be an outsider, to be the foreigner. And I think that has, you know, influenced how, how kind they are with people from regardless of where they're from. 
And so possibly that's a benefit. Great but two, experience. why would I go to UC Davis? Everyone in California goes to UC Davis. But I explain mean, you went to Bordeaux specifically for a degree. Wine. What what did you wind up coming back with? So the program I studied was part of the enology department. It's called the Diplôme en la visite de aptitude de dégustation. Okay. It's called the Duad. It's the last time we're going to say yeah. that. D-U-A-D, Duad. D-U-A-D, okay, the Duad. Okay, we'll refer to it as that. The, the, the Duad. It's a very famous program in France. You have to be a professional in the wine industry to apply and be accepted. They accept 40 people a year. The majority of people in the class are French because it is a program that is taught in French by the professors within the Enology Department at the University of Bordeaux. University of Bordeaux is the top university in France for winemaking and for Enology. And it was a compacted, uh, a very compacted, tight program, and it's a brilliant program. It started with the research from a very famous professor called Penot, mm. who talked about if it's in the glass, how did it get there? So the wine study aspect was from started from what was in the glass, the components, the terroir, the vinification, all aspects of how you get what gets into the glass and where does it come from and so that was the overlying curriculum of the program Great. it's very intense there were nine you know tasting exams there were two written exams there was an or oral exam Extensive. and most foreigners don't pass the class and you did with honors you passed came back to the states correct how long of the period was the whole it was about, program. Um, program was about, I think, a little bit over about 18 months from start wow. to scratch. I mean, the learning and then when you finished up with all your testing. And so I returned to the States in June, July of 2006. Right. Uh, that's where I started to do a lot of peer-to-peer -peer and non-competitive work for to support women in my industry. Uh, first thing I did is I brought over 11 women from Bordeaux to connect and share stories with women in Napa. Nice. And then brought about 15 women from Napa to Bordeaux. They've never seen anything like it from the Bordeaux Society, but they hosted, probably about 60, 70 women hosted these 15 women. It was extraordinary. Sure. And the last year I had the energy to do this, I think there were 30 women from around the world. The only Turkish winemaker, the a South African winemaker, the only Japanese winemaker, women from France, and they came and collaborated in a peer-to-peer three-day program I put together with probably about 60, 70, 80 women in, in Napa. Wow. It was really profound. Uh, very Again, profound. Very profound. Um, Impactful. So that is right before, because you mentioned earlier, you started Rare Cat in 08. That's correct. So you're, you you get the degree, you're doing some very cool stuff, and then you formally launch the winery in That's 08? Right. I formally launched the winery in 2008. It had a very specific goal in mind. It was really to take that kind of American sensibility. I'm a California girl. But to combine with a French palate and French winemaking to really produce world-class wines from single vineyard sources and to focus on bringing and migrating to, I think, pretty important cultures or cultural influences to make wine. I so you had your mission statement pretty clear going I in. think it's always, mission statements change yeah, and adapt, yeah. but well, nonetheless. You were in business, so you know you have to have a plan. Yes. Um, we're going to talk about um, Rare Cat a little more extensively, but I wanted to get your take on a couple of things that Absolutely. you had mentioned. Um, how do you think, it's a very general question, but how do you think women are doing in wine right now? 
And I guess the context is in management, in sales, yeah. in sommelier positions. You know, when, where are women at in wine in your mind today? Well, women in the wine industry represent less than 10% of the industry, so that it's a sucks, small component. Right? I, I think it depends on which, what aspect of the industry we're talking about. If you're talking about Napa Valley winemakers, I think we can say that there's been profound influence from some extraordinary women in the wine industry making some of the most important wines in the world. Do you think, think it's more than 10%? I mean, I know when you talk about you and Kathy Corris and Celia Welch, these are the best. Yeah, the but best the are best. they 10% or they're still... You know, I don't know the answer to okay. that. It I feels bet it's like not it's much more, more. It, but, but it feels like not it's enough. more, but it's probably not enough. Right. You start to talk about so they vineyard, excel manage, that, right. ma vineyard management. I can only think about two women in the vineyard management. When you talk about the distribution side, executives within distribution, it becomes almost dismal. Very often there are no women in the room there. On the Psalm side, I think that there are, now we start to see more and more Psalms. Are they at major positions? I think it's still very, it's a very small percentage of the overall, you know, Psalm community. I, I agree. I think yeah. in New York, you see a little more growth. Yeah. Um, do you, so, better things are better but we're not where we want to be no I think my focus in the last seven years has I've I, I do a lot to try to support women in my industry and I always have with a wine alto femme and a women's palette that's very important to me those to are be organizations positive. right organizations right however I think my personal focus has been working more with executive women within corporations and businesses because what I know with confidence is that wine is an incredibly powerful tool in business and when used purposely it can change it can change careers and so my focus is because of the skill set I have being an exec executive being a winemaker being someone who loves to present and transfer information and compel people with stories is I've been using those those attributes to help educate women about how to use wine as a business tool. And that's more of my focus in the last seven years. I've worked with un, just numerous large corporations across the board in many sectors and thousands and thousands of women. And that's where my passion is. I love using wine to empower women. But my key focus right now is not only on educating women, it's actually working with men in business who run companies who are trying to figure out how to elevate women within their companies and understanding... That problem needs to be solved. Yes, and understanding that if they want to be successful moving forward, they can be 40 to 65% more successful if they have diverse boards. So helping them with strategies to bridge those gender gaps. So my focus very often is actually more within a male audience within corporations and elevating and using wine as an educational process to bring women together within businesses. So it's not, it's not just one or the other. Right. So you're committed to women's leadership, diversity, empowering, yes. convincing men. Yes. I'm a great, I, I, I have an MBA. I'm an economics major. Right. I care about the You didn't mention that in yeah. your thing. I told you to be brief, but you had to be thorough. Uh, yeah, you um, know, but, but, but we know companies with diverse boards are 40 to 65% more successful. That's a fact. Yes. And so there's an economic 
reason why companies need to take a, a, a really profound look at this. And my, what I see is that they're searching for solutions, they're searching for bridging, ways to bridge and elevate and support and mentor. And so they're looking for those sorts of programs and I would like to be part of that solution. So that kind of segues into what you're doing. Mm -hmm. We're in New York because you packed up your Suburban. Yes. And you are in the midst of a 23 city tour. That is correct. Talking to different people at different places about yes. what you just said and yes. other things. So tell me, you know, about the tour and the objectives yes. and goals. So a couple important things to know is that I absolutely, I don't like cars. Um, okay. I'm not particularly a great driver. I'm All a very right. distracted driver. So for me to get to rent a Suburban that I don't know how to back up and drive across the United States for two and a half months to 23 cities, there has to be a compelling reason. And I believe wine is a tool to empower women. I believe wine is a tool to... It's a profound to, tool. It's a profound... Say it. It's a profound there you go. tool. Go it's ahead. my favorite word. Go profound ahead. Profound tool go ahead. to empower women and to promote diversity. But it's also a tool that potentially we can connect people. And I would also suggest that I didn't want to fly over anymore after this last past year. I wanted to bring people together for respectful conversation. And that was enough of a compelling reason to get me to drive a Suburban across the United States. Great idea. And that's what I'm doing. And I will tell you, this is my seventh city. I've probably driven about 6,000 miles. I left March 27th. I will not get back home until June 5th, June 6th. And nowhere have I been um, has the message not resonated, that people want to come together and they are tired of some of the discourse. I think people want to build community. Everywhere I've been, every political environment I've been in, people want to come together and they want to build community. My argument is that if they do that with Rare Cat on the table, that they will be profoundly more successful, 10 times more successful in building community if they have Rare Cat on the table. Well, let's break that down. <laughs> Rare Cat is your wine. We know it's a terrific wine. But in a general term, are we talking about wine as a communal, Absolutely. a lubricant, you know, social Absolutely. drink and all that? Yeah, so you're, you're melding. Absolutely. The circumstance yeah. and wine to yeah. really get people to... Absolutely. Okay. I mean, this is not a new concept. You know, the Romans and the Greeks used wine to build communities. It's a concept that's existed for 5,000 years, breaking bread, sharing a glass of wine, bringing people to the table. I can see it. I see it within a corporate environment with people come in. I call them, they come in hot. Their body language, <laughs> they're tight, they're aggressive, they're you thinking about that. business. And right. you give them one glass of sparkling and it Oh, they just, you can see it in their body language, this ability to relax. Wine is a lubricant. It's a, it's a social lubricant. Now, I mean, too much wine or too much of anything is, right. is not a good thing. So we're talking with just right. you know, responsible. You're not a manager. No. Yeah. But, but you see it and you see people relax and people tend to share and connect, build stories and, and, and build conversations when they're more relaxed. That's when creativity happens, when you're more relaxed. It's yep. when relationships start. So absolutely, people are more open to conversations after a few glasses of wine. I think it's a great thing. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little about the wines. Let's talk about Rare Cat. Um, 
I'll set it up, but you really break it down for me. You make wines in Napa. You make wines in Bordeaux. You make wines in Champagne. Yes. Um, I would say that's not your typical Napa wine company or Napa winemaker. You talked a little earlier about, you know, your vision and the quality. Set up Rare Cat for me. Um, So there is no other American woman producing wines in Bordeaux and Champagne. So it is outside of the box thinking. It's very innovative thinking. And we produce, we import, we in essence, use maybe a technology model, but we eliminate four tiers of distribution. Our winery only sells direct to consumers through clubs, allocations, and mailing lists. So what do we do? We, um, we produce single vineyard wines in world-class regions. We produce wines in Napa Valley. It is, uh, without a doubt, Napa Valley, to me, is the greatest place on the planet to produce Cabernet Sauvignon. I will bring my cab to Bordeaux and have these conversations with my friends who are analogs. I will tell you that I have never gotten anyone to agree with me on that in Bordeaux, but I get, mm, c'est pas mal, which means it's really pretty darn great stuff. They wouldn't tell you they anyway. They weren't in there. I know no. when we, my friends served our old toll and set it up against a Chateau Palmer with three of his analog friends last year, the analogs liked my wines more than Chateau Palmer. So Old Toll is your Cabernet Sauvignon bottling. Um, It's predominantly or all Cab? So it is a little bit of a Bordeaux influence to it. It is 89% Cabernet Sauvignon. It's 2% Petit Bordeaux. And it's um, the rest is about nine percent Cab Franc, but every year that blend changes. Right. We start from scratch. Right. We now work with three hillside vineyards in Napa Valley and two Valley Floor vineyards. So, so we good grow blend fruit. of different types Correct. of grapes. We um, from vineyards that I've planted, from vineyards that I manage, and from pla- um, from vineyards that I buy grapes. So my philosophy is what matters most to me is what is in the bottle, and I will achieve that from any business model I need to do to get there. Because in Bordeaux and Champagne and Napa, there are different business models that one has to use in order to achieve your goals. Right. And I don't know if we formally said it, but you are the winemaker. Direct of all winemaking. So you're, yeah. you're directing all the winemaking. Yes. So what's in the glass is your vision. Yeah. So and in- I actually care deeply about it. I'm sure. I try not to talk about tannins, but I actually care deeply about well, what's in the bottle. Whole, <laughs> that's a whole different conversation. Yes. Um, so you have the Cabernet Sauvignon. Correct. I Napa also Valley. have in front of me, you were gracious enough to bring some wines. You're promoting a rosé. That's correct. Very good timing. Thank you. Tell me quickly about the rosé. It's uh, We've been making it for many years. It is a French-style, Provence-style rosé. It is made from scratch to be a rosé. If you want to make something great, you have to do it with purpose. This is a Grenache rosé, 90%, 10% Viognier, which brings a little bit of unctuousness to that middle palate. To me, when I think about world-class great rosés, I think about beautiful aromatics, slight texture in the mouth, but not heavy, and then, of course, bone, bone dry, dry, so it's refreshing. So the key to this wine, it's a very easy wine to make. It's five months, but you can't hide your mistakes. So you actually have to be thoughtful in everything you do. Less in rosé, you can't uh, hide your you mistakes? Can't, no, you can't. It's put, more... Oh, you can't, right, 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 right. I mean, you just, it's, it's, it's pretty pure and, that And way. it really is about being, ex- it's about the pick date. It's about low sugars. It's about high acidities. It's about very soft press. It's about color extraction and management. It's about cold fermentation and stainless steel tanks. Like 
all those things matter a lot because you're getting to make this very quickly relative to a four-year right. cab. Right. And so um, I am thrilled with this. The 2017, I think it has a really beautiful, bright color. I think the aromatics are just spot on. It's a single vineyard that we've been working for many, many years now. I, um, I tasted I, it and I agree. Thank you. I will endorse that. Um, when we're done, we'll talk about how, where you can get more info on the wines and yeah. all that. Because we are in New York. We're rosé all day. Yeah. I'm just saying. Which we'll tell people what that is. Okay. I think it's the second year. Okay. All right. So let's talk about your two other wines. You, Like you said, you make a Bordeaux in yes, I make a Santa Million. I think you did Santa that Mille. so you could buy a house. Yes. Well, I bought the house, and then it, oh, but okay. it is a hundred. It is a hundred yards from my house. Okay. And I do do wine tourism to Saint Emile and Bordeaux, but this is a dream come true because this is where I fell in love with. I really fell in love with the Bordeaux region when I was twenty in Saint Emile. It's to me the most beautiful village in mm. France, or arguably one of them. Mm -hmm. First UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, all of the great Saint Emile wines come from the Plateau de Calcaire, meaning they have um, they have limestone subsoils. It's very tight. It's very cold soil type. So this um, these vines are 30 years old, slightly sloping on the nice. northeastern side of Saint Emile, in a sector called Sector Villemarine. So Villemarine, Cuspal, Trompe-la-Mondeau, trompe, trompe -la are all, all within this side. <coughs> Got a concentration of extraordinary quality. Vines are very low to the ground. They're 30 years old. You need the radiated heat to help, you know, the maturity of those grapes. It is all hand harvested. It is almost gigantic. We use mold control in the vineyards. And the fruit gets picked by hand and brought down to my partner's property in Pomerol, where it goes through pretty classic terroriste. Like, so you have extraction methods and you have kind of usually vineyard forward methods. And right. so we use you know, um, master, cold, master, cold maceration two or three days, it goes into cement tank, goes through alcoholic fermentation, goes into barrel for malolactic fermentation, 50% new French oak sits in barrel for about 18 months. We do our final blends, bottle it, bottle age for a year. And so this vintage is our 2014 vintage. It's our fourth vintage from the vineyard, this one here. All right, I'm gonna take a little sip. And this is a wine, I, I call this, this is like wine like my oldest son. It's a very introverted wine. It's a very shy wine. But when it opens mm. up, it is so beautiful, profoundly it's beautiful. It's delicious. Um, but like a lot of great young French wines, it needs to be decanted. It, there, there's a respectfulness of how you serve this wine. And so I talk a lot about that. If you love Bordeaux, there's... There's work that you have to do. It's to not to appreciate as, it at its yeah, best. Absolutely. So you're saying a Bordeaux like this, a young one, you want to decant absolutely. for about how long? Open in the morning, drink at night. Open in the morning, drink that night. Literally next night, sit next around, night. open all day. Absolutely. That much time to. In fact, open. I do a lot of fun trials, blind tastings, where I'll put this one directly open next to a wine that's been open, same wine for same three wine. days. Love the three days. It's just such a young wine still. So that's a so good look. lesson from a pro. Don't be afraid to open your wines, no. decant them, and no. let them sit out. And so this is a great wine. We talk about portion control for women or people who want to open a bottle or uh, they're at you know home and they just want to have a glass over a couple nights. This is an amazing wine. You can open it up and drink it a glass, you know, first night, second night, third night, and you'll be absolutely delighted by the progression of this wine. Nice. Great food. Tell me too. about, it's, it's rare I sit with somebody who makes a Napa cab. 
a Saint Emilion and you make a Blanc de Blanc champagne, I right? I do. I How make did a that come champagne. about? Delusional thinking and outside <laughs> okay, of box thinking. You know, you know, one could argue after 36 years in and out of Bordeaux and studying wines, I have friends from when I was 20. You know, the connections to be able to do something in Bordeaux makes sense. I've you know, I speak the language, I study there, there's a level of respectfulness that I have, I've got connections. To say, as a California girl, I want to make a world-class champagne, that's potentially delusional. But it was All a of your of delusions. My, uh, absolutely. That's where innovation comes. If you can think it, you can do it. And thank goodness I have a creative brain. It was a friend of mine, so this family is the oldest family in champagne. A great Champagne family. Tell great, everyone who it is. Michel Gonet, G-O-N-E-T. They have been continually producing wines for 500 years. They have 40 hectares of some of the best vineyards in Champagne. I had the honor of working with the ninth generation to produce a rare cat wine out of their facility in Aziz. Wow. My focus on the Blanc de Blanc is a vineyard in the Cote de Cézanne region, which is farther south. It is a Blanc de Blanc, 100% Chardonnay. The first vintage that we did was a 2009, on yeast seven years, wow. um, late degorged, single vineyard, grower champagne. So that plays pretty nice. high. Grower yeah. champagne's the yeah. hottest and thing right now. Yeah. And so as it turns out, I have none of it left. My nest vintage is 2014. What kind of, do you say what kind of bottlings you did? I we mean, did how six to eight to hundred cases of it, okay. um, basically. Um, but when I was in Hartford, Connecticut uh, a couple weeks, a uh, week ago, some of my great clients actually re-gifted me two bottles. So I'm going to be drinking those two bottles tonight in New York at the Musket Room with some dear friends. So I am over the moon. That'll ecstatic. be great. Yeah. That'll be great. So our next vintage is 2014. It'll degorge in July of this year because of the three-year requirement right. for a vintage. And we'll see it here in the fall. I also do another sparkling wine, which I'm really... A Cremant. A Cremant de Bordeaux. And it's delightful. It's because it's one of the few Cremants that's 100% Semignon. And it has just... It is absolutely delightful. I call it my book club bubbles, my casual bubbles, my rooftop bubbles, my beach bubbles. Fun drink that's fun, delicious fun, fun, and fun, not delicious, expensive. Clean, not expensive, but clean, clean, clean. Beautiful aromatics, clean in the mouth, bright, beautiful acidity, a really pretty, you know, appetizer, anti-pasta wine. Mm. I mean, it's just that kind of, you know, that mm. cocktail, sit around, drink every day, perfect, nice. sparkling. So that's Rare Cat Cremant? Yes. We call it a Rare Cat French Sparkling because not very many people know Cremant de Bordeaux. Right. But it is a AOC They know Cremant, but not from Bordeaux. That's right. It's not All right. Normal. So you have all these terrific wines. If describing them hasn't piqued people's interests, I don't know what will. How do we find out more? Because we have to wrap up. How do we find out more about the wines and where to get them, try them. You have a few mechanisms in place where you talk to me about that. So we are a very small winery. <clears throat> we only sell direct through clubs allocations. So the best way to get our wines and be part of our community and journey and get access to getting allocations is to join one of our allocations or one of our clubs on the website. Which is, what's the address? Uh, Rare Cat Wines, that's R-A-R-E-C-A-T-W-I-E-N-S.com, rarecatwines.com. With some, we have two of our wines that are available for sale on a store on the website. 
we have been very lucky to see 100% growth and really some pretty beautiful growth, not last, but the years before. A lot of our clients who are engaged and love our story and love our wines have been kind enough, and that's what I'm doing, 47 events across the United States hosting us on private wine events. So that's another great way if I'm in a city and there's access to you know getting to one of those events, that's great too. Do you post events and Only stuff on the site? Only if they're open to right. my clients. Yeah. So if anybody yeah. can access something, you would yeah. post that that's event. That's right. I will say, like, we're doing an open event in Washington, D.C. at Lost and Found, but it's sold out. Right. We've been a really, and our... Well, you have your 23 tour dates on the site? Correct. Okay. Now, like we said, not everyone is open, but if you want to know about... And they can follow me, too. The best way is on Instagram. Let's talk social. Because it, it's, I found I've not been a social media maven, and but now I'm finding What's people. What's your Instagram address? <laughs> at Rare Cat Wines. Okay, and yes. are you on Twitter or Facebook? Yes, both the same. Okay. At Rare Cat Wines. Yes. All right, Sharon, we have to wrap up. I we don't ha- want to go though. You have to. I told you it'd go quickly. Uh, yeah. Well. We I have. Think, I think I want to come back. Can I come back? You can. <laughs> I would love to have you back. We have to take a break. I want to thank Sharon Harris from Rare Cat Wines. Um, when we come back, we'll talk to Beth Von Benz. It's no secret that I like being that person who always has some great wine on hand. When I know I've got a few bottles hanging around the kitchen, I feel like I'm ready for anything. If anything, is just because I never know when friends will drop by unannounced or because it's even just a Monday. I also hate that last-minute run to the store. Wine was never meant to be bought in a hurry. It's funny how we have so much patience growing the grapes, aging the wine, only to feel pressured when you're staring at the shelf. I use Vivino to scan and keep track of my favorites. But lately... I've been stocking up through their web store. They have the best prices and largest online wine inventory, but can also give you personalized recommendations based on bottles you've liked in the past. And I use their premium service for unlimited free shipping. That's an extra bottle's worth of savings on every order. Plus, they have a 30-day free trial. I just grab a few at a time and save them from when the right moment rolls around. You never know when that'll be. Visit vivino.com backslash Grape Nation to stock up. Welcome to the show, Beth, and thank you for joining us for our Women in Wine Month in June. Thanks for having me. Um, Beth, you've traveled the world. (laughs) You've held many positions and worked with some great wine people in New York City. I'm not going to date you, but during the 80s, 90s, and now, we're way into the early 2000s, what I want to get from you, just to start with, is that moment when you realized your love for wine, and basically that's what you were going to be doing from that point on, and if you can weave in a chronology for me, to the best you can, I know that could take a long time, but give it your best shot. All righty. Well, I was born in Boston, 
My parents had a summer house on Cape Cod, and nice. one of my first jobs was working in restaurants in Provincetown. So at a, in the late teens, at an early age, I worked at some um, fine-ish dine, right, dining restaurants. So I started out knowing about the business, but at that point in time, there wasn't a lot of wine. I moved to Boston. I moved to San Francisco. I moved to Los Angeles. I moved back to the East Coast and came back to New York and decided that's where I was staying. All of those places, I did work occasionally in restaurants, and some of them were also fine dining. I had an aunt when I lived in San Francisco who was lived in Sonoma, and she took me to Chez Penny. She took me to the um, Zuni Cafe. So all of these times, I worked with somebody who lived across from the old Spago in L.A., and we used to go in there and drink cocktails, but really... None of this was wine, but I did have some fine dining. So I come to New York. I work in some restaurants. It gets to be a few years later, and I decided I've never traveled anywhere. So I give up everything. I put all my things into storage, and I go to Europe. First for the six months, then I come back. I work in restaurants, and one of them was Cafe Luxembourg, which is one of up, the first upper little West. upper west, that first little taste. A woman... Wait. Give us a year so we know where this we're This was uh, late 80s. Okay. So okay. we're in the late 80s. Okay, right. And so a oh, fantastic woman named Diana von Furstenberg. <laughs> Diana von <laughs> Bu- Van Buren. <laughs> I know. <laughs> no. Diana Van Buren. She was the pastry chef. She was also then later known for Bar 6 that was in the West Village, a fantastic um, wine program. She... Did a lot of traveling. She did the wine list at Cafe Luxembourg. It was a very hip, fun place, and I learned a lot from her. Fast forward, I travel for a, a few years. A woman in wine. A woman in wine, very exactly. Cool. Inspired Early by on. a woman in wine, absolutely. Yeah. That was kind of cool because in those days there weren't, there wasn't the wine person. The pastry chef was the <laughs> wine person. <laughs> right. So that that was very neat. And then I traveled to Asia. I met my husband in Australia. In is the he late, Australian? Yes, he is. Okay. And we tasted a lot of wine there. Then we went to Greece together, and that was the first time I had ever traveled around Greece, tasted some wines, but still. 1990, not the best wines in Greece, but, you know, I'm seeing the pairing, the food pairing, the whole thing that comes when you travel. Did you go to Greece because it's a beautiful place to visit? Yes. And the wines, or no. the wines were sort the, of secondary? Everything, the okay. wine to this point, even though I'm in fine dining, just wasn't the thing for Got me. It. So I moved to, my husband moves to New York. I We work for a while. We do the same thing. We save up money. We go to Mexico and Guatemala for a year. We were married by the mayor in Antigua, Guatemala. We come back, and we work at a nightclub in the 50s called Tattoo. And a friend of mine did the wine program there. And at this point, all this traveling I've been doing, a lot of my friends who were bartenders, managers, waiters, they're all now in the wine business. They're salesmen or brand managers or buying wine. So I have all these connections. So we start tasting wine at Tattoo. I know this friend of mine who worked there, Carl Intersano. He is, um, we used to work at Cherry Lehman. So we're all into the wine, but we're still kind of waiters, bartenders, managers. Then I leave there and I go down to this really cute lounge bar in the East Village, more downtown, more my style, because I'm living in the East Village now also and have been the whole time. And it's called Global 33. 
So I worked there for a while. Dewey Dufresne from Fabulous Biggie Sandwiches. He was the uh, consulting chef there, and it was really cool, fantastic place. And they said, you should buy the wines, which consisted of 10 whites and 10 reds. But... It gave me a chance. That's what they had, or that's what they wanted you <laughs> no, to buy. No, that's what that—that's uh, what I bought. Okay. But then all my friends would come in and invite me out to lunches and to tastings, and you know this opened the the gates. I took classes. So the global thing was kind of a breakthrough absolutely. for exposure. Absolutely, and I and took, you were loving it. Absolutely, and I took classes. I went to the ASA. Andrea Emmer was around at Windows this before, but she was a big person also. That you know, I remember in the post in like 1994 that did an article on women in wine. Andrea Emmer, Emmer and I, and I think maybe Karen King, were like the three people that would featured, and that was a big deal for me. Wow. So I'm at Global 33, and a friend of mine comes in, and she said, you should go uptown to this place. There's a fabulous chef that just left Gotham Bar and Grill. He was uh, Alfred Patoli's sous chef, Bill Telepin. So the he had this... Telepin. Yes, absolutely. The great Bill Telepin. He had this restaurant that no one ever has ever heard of because I think it lasted like maybe a year and it was called Ansonia. Upper West Side, very difficult restaurant wasteland, you know, really a tough place to make a foundation of Much better work. now. It's a, it's a little, little bit. better, but it's not like it blew up. A little bit better. Yeah. So that was my first restaurant. That was my first heirloom tomato or anything farm to table. You know, I probably never had that point gone to Gotham before. This was, you know, out of my realm a little bit. And I had to run to catch up. There were tasting menus and unusual food. A lot of people came in to check it out. There's a lot of connections so that was my first job then one day i went and the door was locked with a you know your clothes okay that's bad (laughs) and i worked at two wine stores because it was the fall i worked at gotham wines uptown which was a different location but actually had bulletproof cashiers (laughs) and then i opened with chris cree who's an mw fabulous chelsea wine vault Oh, that's a cool place. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, one, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the other, completely different. But I got a real immersion in what was happening, what was selling retail. I made $9 an hour. It was crazy, but it was fun. Then I went from there to Estatorio Milos, and that's really my Greek breakthrough. This is 1997. But Esteria is a big deal because oh, yeah. it's a big deal restaurant. Absolutely. Besides it was then. Greek, Greek, right. Absolutely. It hit the ground Absolutely. as a spot. Absolutely. So you get there what year, you said? 97. Okay. So I and worked you- there and I try to put together a list. Now, Roger Dargon previously did the list a year before, the as opening a list. Yes. And they he, he was told no Greek wines. A year later, they wanted all Greek wines, which was difficult to find because I had to like call people up, go to Astoria. You know, there was no 750. <laughs> right. <laughs> there was like the beverage media and nothing Less was in there. distributors, <laughs> I assume, too. Ab- absolutely. But and, they were and, all individual. Right. So this guy had three, that guy had three. That's the thing, like Italian wines in those and days. no way evolved in the market the way it is now, Absolutely. Right? So absolutely. you had to really dig for it. Absolutely. And there was no one there to help me because no other restaurant except Greek restaurants had it. So I worked there. I compiled a list of 50 Greek wines plus, you know, 200 wines, but that was a really big deal. And I introduced Greek wines to a lot of sommeliers around town. People called me up and said, hey, you know, from Dukas or from Paul at Gramercy or Karen at Union Square. And I brought Greek wines to non-Greek restaurants. So take pause for a second. You, You go to this restaurant 
which eventually becomes one of the great restaurants, let alone Greek restaurants in New York. And they finally ask you to buy Greek wines. Now, you did it because they asked you, but obviously, like you said, you had to dig and taste. Mm -hmm. What were you thinking? I mean, how were the wines, the quality? I mean, what was your take then? To tell you the truth, I was very excited about it. But actually, when I look back, I did have a lot of European varietals and not indigenous Greek grapes because that just was the supply and demand. That was here. So I did have Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay and a few things like that, or blends. But But by Greek makers. By Greek makers, absolutely. And they were growing the Chard and the Sauvignon Blanc. Yes, and there were other grapes, too. And, you know, I was around when, you know, I poured this wine, you know, lots of wines by the glass that now are prohibitive at that cost. Right, 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 right. (laughs) All right, so you're at Milos, you break into the whole Greek thing, you become sort of this Greek expert. Absolutely. So then what happened? Two years later, I'm out with Chris Cannon at a wine dinner, and I just met him, famous restaurateur, Crazy Hall, guy, right? amazing man. Right. And I said, I think I'm leaving Milos. And he said, you have to come to Judson Grill. And now Bill Telepan had relocated. He was um, a three-star New York Times chef at Judson Grill. And I went there. In the mid-50s, mid Absolutely. And a lot of people said, well, you're going to be working with Chris, and it's not really going to be your baby. But Chris told me eventually he was possibly going to move on, which he did. But it was the smartest thing, because it gets lonely (laughs) working by yourself. Those days, there weren't any assistants. You'd be like, how's this wine? Oh, I'm only by myself. So it was fun, and I learned so much from Chris, because he had come from a bunch of Italian restaurants, and that's something that was really my weak spot. And I learned how to run a business, how to, you know, buy wines. I just do everything in a wine program. He set me up completely. Now, so Chris was working He was a for managing Bill? partner. He was a managing partner. Yeah, he absolutely. had some equity or absolutely. something? Okay. Absolutely. And, but he was on the floor and he knew. And, we, you know, it was a big place. That place was a monster. Yes. We did a lot of parties. We did a huge power lunch. So um, this was, you know, and we had a very eclectic wine list. Like the explain a little what we had a he had a page the first page was a value page and we put on all sorts of things so his mother his parents live in athens and his mother's greek so he loved the greek wines and this is a point where no one had greek wine so i just brought over a whole bunch of greek wines and i had like wines from slovenia i had a whole page (laughs) of like rosés when nobody had rosé but on this value page people were like oh okay i'm gonna take a chance because it's a value so we really moved, absolutely, right. we moved a lot on that page, and it was really exciting to use that as a vehicle. But you had all the fine wine stuff, too. Absolutely. Yeah, the we Cali's had DRC and the, and the Super Tuscan, absolutely everything, everything. So you're there how long? You're working with Chris, which turned out, crazy guy, but turned out to be a great experience Absolutely. And he left, I was there for four years. Wow. Right. So, you know, that's, that's a lot. And uh, 2004, then I left there, and I... Went out to the Nick and Tony's out in the Hamptons, right. and I worked there for a little while. And then I, losing my mind, I went to Guastavinos. So Michael Explain Lamonico. Explain to people what Guastavinos, Guastavinos is. Guastavinos is that big, place fabulous space. place over on the east side that's right under the Roosevelt Island tram. And Michael Lamonico was working for David Emile and doing a little pop-up. <laughs> Which is hilarious to think of, but basically he was doing a consulting job, and he was working towards Porterhouse, New York, which I then became the wine director in the um, Time Warner building. So Michael's still a Porterhouse. Yes, he is. one of the better great steakhouses in New York. Michael's a wonderful guy. Absolutely. Lovely man. 
It's steakhouse. I know. That's like a steakhouse wine I list. I know. How do you work that? Are you and, stuck or you could do things? Well, I was like the group, the the guru of like Slovenian geeky wine. So when I was approached, I was like, okay, this is cool. But I had some time. I went out to a lot of steakhouses. I realized that it's about like a simple technique, that this is spa for men. They go there. They already probably know what they're going to have to eat. They want to quickly find a wine. And the faster you find a wine for them, the more they're going to drink two bottles or three bottles. So I set up the whole wine list. I custom made it. I started small at first, and then I built. And really, it was a hugely successful um, program, so you, wine you program. you accepted what the challenge Absolutely. is, what the market Absolutely. was. Absolutely. And people and would come in it. and, like, diss me. <laughs> Because, Why? because they were like, this is your list? And I'm like, yes. <laughs> Do you know how much wine we sold this month? Wow. So, but, it, you know, it was, a, it was a very interesting experience and a fantastic place to work and a yeah. great staff. And we put together a great group of psalms with me. And really, it was. Now, Michael Lamonico awesome is the owner and the chef. Tell everyone where Michael made his name at Windows of the World. Right. I mean, he was there before, during, Absolutely. and after the whole 9 11 thing. Absolutely. So you stay at Porterhouse. Two years. Two years. And then I wanted to take some time off, and a friend of mine worked up at Zaki's, and he said, why don't you just come up? And I said, oh, I'm going to go to Mexico and do this. And I got up there, and they're like, there's your desk, and um, here's your... And I was like, did I miss the first two interviews? I'm not really (laughs) sure. So I ended up being the American wine buyer and the 10 Greek wine buyer (laughs) um, for Zaki's, which was a big job. I was just going to say, I would think Zaki's moves as much yeah, California, huge. Washington, Oregon, you know, as anybody. What could you do there? I mean, were there like new wineries you could bring in? Absolutely. You, you know, what impact did you have? There? I had a lot of friends who were making wine in California, and I went to California a lot, and I helped support those wines, and I got into the job, and it was so great, and I love the people I work with, and then it became 2008. Boom. Yep. Scarsdale closed Nobody's buying up. anything. <laughs> so I left there, and um, I did some consulting, and I realized, you know, that's my thing. And so I have my own consulting firm, and I... MVB Consulting. MVB Consulting, absolutely. And I have since then worked with the Greek wines, and I now... So you're, you're one of the New York Greek wine experts. Absolutely. If not the country. Absolutely. What? Um, so explain what the consulting thing is. You work with different restaurants, R- clients. Right. What I, type have a, of stuff I work at doing? a restaurant in the West Village. I buy for there part-time. It's called 50. 50, it used to be Commerce, 50 Commerce Street. And the chef is Ecuadorian. So I have real fun. And we're t- changing the list over to more South American wines. So I definitely... Like Milos, buy me Greek wines. Absolutely. Absolutely. Buy me absolutely which is South really American. fun because there's a lot of great stuff coming out of Chile and Argentina and Uruguay. Well, let's talk about that because you're on it. So give me, drop some knowledge here. So people think of South America as... Argentina, Mendoza, and Chile. Right. Um, those are two major places. Absolutely. Are there any other areas sure. we should be Sure. Talking? Brazil, Uruguay is making some great Tanat from Uruguay. Right. And Paul Hobbs, I just tried a whole line of his Tanats from tanat Uruguay. Tanat is a red wine, very deep, brooding, Absolutely. dark. Absolutely. Right? And just as Malbec does really well in Argentina, Tanat does really well in Uruguay. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of a cool Right. Cool it's wine. indigenous to the area. Absolutely. And there's a lot of cool guys doing fantastic stuff. I was in Chile and Patagonia last year, and there's 
lots of fantastic They're biodynamics. Pinots down there, right? Pinots, unbelievable Pinots. Zorzal, Z A. Is that a maker? Yes. Z O R Z A L. Yes, and he makes um, Pinot Noir from Mendoza, but a little too Pangata area. Pangata, right? Yeah, yeah, it's fantastic. Give so, me another. How um, about a Chilean? Chilean Labertino. Spell L A B E R T I N O Sauvignon Blanc, and he does a lot of white blends of like mm. crazy blends, but really cool. And a lot of these guys have been picked up by producers that I mean, d- distributors that people can find now, and they're really out there. And I'm guessing they're not too crazy on price. No, they're not. Malbec's been a great value Absolutely. wine. I mean, there's higher-end versions. Absolutely. What else? I went to this really cool tasting the other day, and it was called the Descorchados Tasting, and it's a book that reviews wines from South America, and there was, like, amazing wines from this tasting, but that's where I tried the Labertino really? and the Sorzano. Nice. Absolutely. All right, so we're current as far as your life, right? Right. You know, you're consulting, you're working right. at 50. So you were an early proponent evangelist, cheerleader, exposer of Greek wines. Mm-hmm. You mentioned rosé, mm-hmm. um, things like Gruner that you didn't talk about that nobody was pouring right. or drinking right. then, um, and probably a bunch of other familiar wines. I asked you this before the show. What, and you may have mentioned a few just now from South America, what are some of those wines now that are not recognized or you know not big? Certainly... Greek wines Absolutely. were not a thing. Is, is it? You know what's really crazy is now I'm running into Australian wines. Coming back. Unbelievable. But a different presentation. Absolutely. Now, it is true that a friend of mine just became the educator for Wines of Australia. Okay. But I was invited to this tasting the other day of 16 Aussie Pinots. And I was, like, incredibly impressed. Oh, I mean, really. Stuff. But a lot of cool climate areas yes. making, not trying to make Burgund- Burgundian wines, right. but with finesse and elegance. So, Do you remember a yeah, maker I or do. two? I do. There's one that's called Ochota, but actually... Ochota I, Barrels. Yes. Yes. O-C-H-O-T-A. Barrels, okay. absolutely. And it's called A Forest. Because he felt feels like there's like forestry forestry notes in it. That's from Adelaide Hills. Fantastic right. wine. And another Bindi Dixon. B-I-N-D-I Dixon. And that's from the Macedon Mountain Ranges and the lower Macedon Mountain Ranges. So these are like beautiful, elegant, lovely, maybe like New Zealand Pinots way back right. when that were really um, very cool wines that I tasted, two wines. So I think you're on to something, because Australia had its day with Shiraz. Absolutely. But then it kind of went away, and now it's coming back in a different way. Absolutely. What was killed cooler... by Yellowtail. Yeah. <laughs> That'll kill anyone. <laughs> um, but these cooler uh, weather pinots, they're making Absolutely. cooler climate. They're making Absolutely. Rieslings and all that. Absolutely. What else? You got another one for me? Yeah, I do. I really like um, Chocolate. I'm like back into chocolate. You have to spell that for everyone. T X A K O L I. Chocolate is uh-huh. the grape. The, the chocolate is kind of like the name of the wine. The name of the yes, wine. Yes, and Hondurabi Zuri. 
So H-O-N-D-A-R-R. Is the grape? And then Z-U-R-Y. Is Z-U-R-I is, um, is the grape. And that's so from? So it's from Chocolate. It's up in the north in the Basque country. Right. Really interesting wines. And they had their day too, but I just tried something that won the other day that was like absolutely fantastic. So I think, you know, Psalms love it and it makes for an interesting wine list. Absolutely. You can come across it. Absolutely. I think the fact that you recommended it, we spelled it for people. When they see that crazy <laughs> uh-huh. thing, they go, hey, that's the thing Beth was talking mm-hmm. about, you know. So that's definitely a good one. Um, so. What's exciting you now? I mean, are, are those the wines that you've been trying? Is there any one thing that um, you've been drinking or you've come across? Is it the Australian wines? No, or? white Bordeaux. White Bordeaux. I'm really into white Bordeaux. Great value. Um, some are great value and a lot, you know, less expensive and higher quality than I, I think. And you can find them around now. I mean, I, I'm very interested in like Grave Blanc. I love Grave Rouge, but I think there's a lot of value and interesting wines that are out there and cropping up everywhere. That's a great reco. Um, sort of a selfless plug in about three weeks, we're having three women winemakers that make white Bordeaux. Oh, fantastic. They're going to be on pretty well known. Um, so that's a good one. All right. So I want to, I'm going to list a lot of that stuff on our social media great. sites because they're great recommendations. And, you know, that's why I wanted you to come in to talk about those wines and, you know, why you know about them. What I want to talk to you about, and we didn't talk about it while you were describing your career. Um, in June, we do Women in Wine. We try to feature wine in women. I'm just curious if you recall, recounted, feel, felt that when you were in the business, and you were in the business at a time when, and I said it in the intro, being a Psalm was not a thing. (laughs) It's a thing now. Was being a woman ever an issue? I think there were times, it was interesting because when I went to Milos, which I thought were much more worldly clientele, there's a lot of celebrities, but I think that because people were European, that they're used to like the male bartender, you know, the male, so that was a little bit, absolutely. But then when I went to Judson Grill, everyone was like perfectly fine with it. And, you know, I did have times where the person would say, can you send over the sommelier? But I mean, I think people have times like that now. I feel like I was really lucky. I also came on it a little bit later in life. So I wasn't like very, very young. So that's hard to be you young. You were well traveled and, and mature Absolutely. enough. No one was going right. to ask for the sommelier. <laughs> you're afraid. <laughs> I guess you're the sommelier. <laughs> well, I actually had an assistant when I was at Porterhouse and he was very young and he would go over to the table and they'd be like, Where's Beth? Get out of here, kid. <laughs> but because he, he was, you know, even young. in the early days, it wasn't, you know, even working, you know, in and out of restaurants and the bars and all I that. I feel it like it gave me an advantage in a lot of ways. I think it's your personality, too, and how you approach things. You know, it's an individual thing, too. Um, how do you think women are doing in wine today? I, I think mean, they're doing great, you know. And what do you say to support that? They have the jobs, they have the cloud. I mean, what do you think? Um, I don't understand the question. <laughs> well, I, I mean, is the presence of women in wine as good now, you know, as ever? I, I mean, are they holding positions, whether it's in restaurants, sommelier, right. management? Do you feel 
women have made their mark in wine? I think so, but I think it's sometimes difficult now because it sometimes needs to depend on being attached to two little letters after your name. So in the last few years, I've gone out to Pebble Beach, many years, as a matter of fact, and worked, and some of the panels are all men, and actually people were joking that they're manals because, right. you know, so that's difficult, but then what is it, you know, it's very difficult to have experts in that field and what you, the pool you have to choose from happens to be all men. So right. that, that's, that's tough. Well, I guess one of the things, you know, that points towards that is if you look at MWs and even sommeliers, most of them are men, you know, so that has to continue to change. I think it is. I think in New York... You see more women sommeliers, more managers, and all Absolutely. that. Absolutely, and San Francisco and yes. Los Angeles yeah. also. So. But I, I think, um, I think the uh, rest of the country and certain you know businesses you know need to change. When I sold wines at Sackey's, it was a lot of telephone. So someone would do a big order, and you would call up, and I would look through the list, and the entire list was all men. And when I'd see a woman, I would get so <laughs> excited and like email her, and she would come to find out that she was the secretary of the law firm buying the right. wine through for her boss. And it was like, damn. Well, you know, you kind of answered my question because... When you look at wine and who's consuming it and Zaki's is top of the game as far as retail and what they have access to and what they sell, it's mostly guys. Absolutely. You know, I think that's changed a little. I think, you know, women are uh, um, probably buying as much or more wine than ever. But if you look at the Zaki's list, you know, it's still a bunch of dudes or whatever. It was shocking. (laughs) Yeah. And I don't know how much different it is now. Um, If you look back, I mean, you've been doing this probably over 25 years. I mean, if you had to think about what's changed the most, you know, anyway, currently than, you know, when you started coming through it, what changes have you seen? I think the incredible, like, availability and the broad range of knowledge of Psalms and the upgrade of so many restaurants are bringing in a wine person. They have a manager, a wine person, the chefs, and it's just wonderful to have that. I think that that is fantastic. And just, you, you know, it's the, taking a center stage. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's and it's so knowledge, easy to, availability. Uh, five years ago, I had a friend who wrote for uh, um, Real Simple Magazine, and she would ask me to pair the wines with the food. And at that point, just like the internet really hadn't taken off to as much, so they would say, you have to have a wine that's available in 30 states. And then, you know, that oh, dumbed boy. it down to like Ravenswood Zinfandel. Right. Right. So, so now things have really changed. So when I do do something for a magazine, they, they never ask me that because I do things for Wines Rioja. Right. That's why when I ask our guests for wines, you know, talk to me about things that are accessible, somewhat accessible. You know, accessibility can be in a restaurant, could be restaurant and retail, could be retail and price. You know, not everybody's going to drop uh, 70, 80, 100 on wine. I'm a cheapskate when it comes to wines. Well, I think the other thing is, and you're probably as good as anyone, you could find incredible values. I love to do And I'm going to ask you in our wine list. So one of the big takeaways is availability, accessibility, more stuff and all of that. I I agree with that. I had Kevin Zraeli on almost a year ago, and he said, I worked in New York. There were five Psalms. In the city. Absolutely. <laughs> he said, you go to 11 Madison, there's six on the floor. <laughs> I know. You know, so there's that whole change and everything, which is interesting. 
right, Beth. Um, I want to subject you to our wine list. I want you to uh, talk about your preferences. I'm going to ask you a bunch of questions. And, you know, just buzz through them. You don't have to overthink these. They're simple questions. We ask our guests the same questions. So the first question is, and maybe you answered it, but tie it together for me, is what are you drinking now? What's on your table at home? What are you tasting? Is it seasonal? Yeah, seasonal rosé. You know, I really like rosé. I just had a Muga Rioja rosé, which is delicious, 2017. M-U-G-A, fresh, Spanish? M-U-G-A, Rioja. And it was like $14. So... 14 bucks, yeah, I was just going to say. Yeah. So that's a great value. Absolutely. So Absolutely. rosés, anything else? Yeah. Um, no, I guess so. But probably Bordeaux Blanc, Chocolate. Right. right. I, said I we love sparkling mentioned. wines, but I don't even want to mention the C word because everybody's <laughs> well, <laughs> so then, into then, it. Then great. So <laughs> there's champagne. Give me a couple of sparkling wines or regions. Okay. You know, I that know you, is it Jura? Is it Cremant? Cremant to Alsace. Cremant Alsace. Right. Fantastic. You know, I'm doing a whole Alsace retail thing this month. Alsace Rocks. There you go. For two and um, for wines of Alsace. And I've been tasting some really delicious, made in the same, same way as champagne. Right. Under $20, almost all of them. you remember anybody? Well, I do have one, but it's a little bit more um, expensive. Of, yeah, but, but it's cheaper than champagne. Right. It's Valentin Zuslin. V-A-L-E-N-T-I-N. Right. And Z-U-S-S-L-I-N. And that's and Alsatian. Alsatian. Cremant Sparkling Alsace, Cremant. Brut Zero. No sulfites and no um, dosage. So very you, dry, elegant. So that's in the upper 20s. Okay. But not, really delicious. You know, still, it's you know, much less than um, yes. champagne. yes. Um, all right, so those are good ones. We'll move along. Does Beth have her favorite wine and food pairing? Anything that I love comes all back? sorts of things, but lately I Give just seem few. to be going through. Last night I went to a white Bordeaux, see fresh on my mind, um, <laughs> tasting at Waverly Inn, mm. and I had the most divine, simple um, deviled egg. With, with a white a Bordeaux? white Bordeaux, Chateau du Maine, M-A-Y-N-E, Grave Blanc, but on the richer style, like 75% So tell me why that works. The egg is rich, the yolk, you have the protein Absolutely. from and the white. And a lot of times they say, you know, eggs coat the mouth, so, but whatever. But this wine, it was just creamy and creamy, so compliment, you know, ah. that can be contrast and compliment. But I just, I just loved it. It was just such a delicious little, and so simple. Deviled eggs. Listen, white that's a first for the show. <laughs> Nobody has ever. Some people have said champagne and oysters. Right, more I know. Nobody said know. deviled eggs I know. and white Bordeaux. Definitely. So kudos to you. Thank on you that. very much. All right, you certainly have been around. So I want you to tell me your favorite wine restaurant and/or bar. Could be New York. Could be anywhere. But places that do wine well are passionate about it have the selection, the knowledge. What's 
restaurant, wine bar, both, either? Well, restaurant, and I also have a wine bar. Restaurant would be Molivos. I think that Kamal is doing a fantastic job, the wine director Molivos. He has, like, undoubtedly the best Greek wine list in the world. Even so, Molivos, Midtown 50s? Mid, mid, Midtown 50s. I think 55th, between 55th and 56th right. on 7th Avenue. So, if you want to taste Greek wine, Absolutely. A hidden been... gem. Then, I hate to plug him Good even food. more, but he just opened up a cute little wine bar downtown that's called The Athenian. Greek wine bar, Greek tiny wine. little Greek wine bar on Ninth Street between Second and First Avenues, and cool it's wonderful. Yes, it's a tiny. What's it called place, again? The Athenian. The Athenian. And it has like fifty Greek wines by the glass. It's crazy with really great little food. It's a tiny little bar and two seats in the front. I think nice. it seats like sixteen people. Nice. But really, if you are studying for your MS and you need you to need go out to there and taste up it, on so Greek wine, get down there. That's the place. But uh, it's a very fun. Place. You got any non-Greek places? Oh, I love Racines. Racines. I love Pascaline. Arno and Pascaline. You know, I just went down there the other day, and it's just such a fun, casual place. And they it's brought like Paul Liebrand in. A, yes. You know, I really, I think it's an excellent place. She's think, a doll. Yes, and I think the and whole... And a true e- professional, too. The whole experience. Absolutely. There, the selection, the knowledge, and all that. Those are all good choices. Now, do you have a favorite all-time wine or a couple all-time wines and it, it doesn't have to be like you know the romani conti it could be experiential event birthday any yeah totally i mean i have millions you know <laughs> <laughs> but um i you know at one point i was at beau graviere in the rhone and had an old i think it was 1990 um Chavre you know mm. that's classic and they do like a little truffled eggs things again the eggs <laughs> but that was but the that was fantastic last summer i was in tuscany and i was staying at castello de ama and they have their san lorenzo mm. and uh, san lorenzo and i had this lovely little zucchini and carrot like torta with saffron sauce and this is you know red wine but it had seen some edge it was fantastic so you know i love food and wine that's the experience right that's why it's not always you know some fancy schmancy burgundy it's it's the time and the place and all of that all right tap into your knowledge and experience and recommend to my listeners best wine around 15 bucks 15 20 bucks Give me a red, give me a white. You can give me a category, a region, a specific wine. Like you could say Muscadet or Mm -hmm. give me a white, give me a red. White, I really, I hate to say it, but Greek wines, there's a lot of great, great Greek wines. I agree. I had a friend who has a gallery and he wanted me to choose some wines the other day for him. And he gave me like a $14 limit. (laughs) <laughs> so I went into Aster and I found some great wines. They're white and red for you know under um, fourteen dollars. You know, so I definitely was there. One was Notius, N-O-T-I-O-S, and it's Notius. made by Yaya G A I A. They don't pronounce the G. Okay, and he makes fantastic wine. Yanis Pedescovopoulos. Don't ask me to spell that. <laughs> P-E-D-L-O-P-O-L-O-S, right? Okay. But that was, you I'll know, I think up. like $12 is a white and a red. Great, great little value, fun great wine. wine. It's Roditas and Savatiano. All right, so that's that's white. white, right? Give me a red. Red, I don't know. Lately, it's, it's I've harder. been interested in Italian reds, like Canino di, di Sardinia. You know, I mean, that is, you can get, I was in also Aster. They had a 2013 from Mosca, it's like a Stella and Mosca, like a 
old world classic blend for thirteen dollars. Wow. I mean, that's like a, that has always have true value. So where did you say that's from? Sardinia. Sardinia. Or? Okay, right. so Sardinian so th- wines. Right, Cannonau, and that's Campania, really... Campania, Sardinia, Puglia, right. even right. Sicily are great values. I know, and also like Montepulciano d'Abruzzo, which used to be like the big leader right. bottles, but now, now that it's... is getting hip, and I'm pouring one at the restaurant, and I was afraid to put it on thinking, and it's like the flies off the list. Because it's delicious. I know. All right, so those are great ones. I'm going to post those so everybody knows. Um, we're going to wrap up the show. We taste wine, and I'm glad to have the pleasure to taste wine with you. Um, every week we taste a different wine on air. For our weekly wine sip this week, we're going to taste, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone because I'm no dummy, a 2017 Sigalas <laughs> Acertico white wine from Santorini in Greece. Now, let's go backwards, Beth. Is Sigalas the way to pronounce it? Sigalas. Sigalas. And the gentleman's name is um, is Paris Sigalas. And Acertico? Acertico is perfect. Okay. A-S-S-Y-R-T-I-K-O. Um, right. And it's a wine from Santorini in Greece. This wine retails for about 23 25 26 bucks. Not cheap, but they're one of the great producers that's available that makes consistent wines. Tell me a little more about... The grape, the maker, the wine. Okay. What can you tell me? In 1997, I was pouring this by the glass. <laughs> okay, before anybody. <laughs> no, and Milos. Yes, probably before right. most people. And this is the way that they grow the grapes. Are uh, They're trained in a basket-like form because if they were put up in a trellis in Santorini, because of the elements and the sun, it would just destroy them. So they, when you actually go, and when I first went to Greece, I, I thought they were like squash plants or something like that because they're trained very low to the ground wow. to protect them in lava soils. So this wine is like powerful, amazing fruit, lime rind, you know, incredible acidity. We have like crudos and ceviche at the restaurant, and this right, would just cut through and go you're with You're getting anything. ahead of me. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's evaluate it. So let's go color first. It's a beautiful... Color. Like pale yellow? Absolutely, absolutely. Like light honey. Yeah. So beautiful color. Now, jump back in. Let's talk nose first. Okay. What do you get on the nose here? I get like tart, tart fruit, almost like like dry apricot. Citrus. Absolutely. Dry, right. Not apricot, dry apricot. Mineral? Absolutely. But some real, yes, I see the grapefruit and. and a little like citrus rind. There's like a real like limey citrus rind, Definitely and a citrus. little bit of like a beeswax note. All right, let's let's throw it over the tongue now, okay? I'm spitting right now. So this is rich and powerful. Mouthfeel is medium plus. Med- medium plus. Full for this type of very full flavored, bold style, and it is dynamic in your mouth. Like the acidity is like searing. Great acidity. Unbelievable. Dry. Very dry. Nice dry though. But you still have that lovely fruit, that dried fruit element that's just gorgeous. Whether it's the tangy citrus and that little kind of dried apricot peach. Yeah. The nose carries through to the palate for sure. Absolutely, um, it's a pretty long finish. Absolutely, for a white wine like right. this, I Absolutely. mean, it lingers very nicely. Absolutely. The other thing is, and tell me if it has any proximity to where the grapes are grown. There's a salinity to it. Absolutely, 
Is totally. that from the air sure, or whatever? Sure, Do you sure. pick up that salinity? Yep. Right, it so, almost has a you know definitely like a salty note. Yeah, Ooh, wonderful, but, but nice. Yeah, yeah, not totally, off-putting totally, at totally, all. Totally. You know, work it, it, it melds in with everything. What's the recommended or classic pairings with a wine like this? Fish with some grilled fish with some lemon capers would be delicious. That would be something that would be classic, but, you know, a lot of things that, you know, some people even, you could have this wine with some kind of a chicken or pork would be wonderful, too, with rosemary pork, with rosemary, like roasted pork. Do we we like this wine? I love this wine. Now, it's a 2017. Um, What do you do with a wine like this? Is it drinking well now? Do you buy this wine and put it down? Well, I think there's a few schools of thought with this matter. At one point, we were all drinking the freshest wine. And now people are coming around to say, you know, this wine is delicious now, but put it down for a few years and, you know, it will be even more so. But for a while, we all drank the freshest wine. But you could do both. Absolutely. You could Absolutely. buy it off the shelf and have this delicious, crisp, fresh right. wine. Well, that's what's cool about Molivos. He has taken a lot He's of aged. his... Yes. And so you really have that opportunity at great prices to... Um, so what happens... So you take this wine, because it's a quality maker. Mm-hmm. You lay it down for two, three years. You open it up. What are the differences we're going to see? I think you're still going to see the acidity, but the fruit is was going to mellow out a little bit more. You know, the whole thing is just going to be a little bit more elegant and subtle. This the is a big powerful is going to calm down a little bit. You'll yes. get that and yes. all of that. All right. I mean, this is almost a wine now to be drunk alone because you know it's amazing. Yeah, it is that type of wine. Um, price point, not cheap, right? No. But not, but expensive. not expensive for this kind of wine. And I think if you but think of is, the process is like uh, you know amazing that people have to train the grapes and they have to pick them low to crazy. the ground and nobody I wants to do that. this. And so they're trying to get these funds together to save the wines in Santorini because a lot of people just want to have a jewelry shop and right. <laughs> don't have a broken back. <laughs> this is like a pain in the ass. Yeah, forget that. And stuff. especially the youth that are coming in are like, forget it. Yeah. Millennials. Uh, <laughs> all right, so that's the 2017 Sigalis Acertico. It's a white wine from Santorini, Greece. Uh, Beth and I loved it. I agree with her. Uh, it's about 25 bucks. It's a wine that you should bring to a nice dinner to nice friends, Absolutely. and it would be a treat for everybody. Or give to a wine geek or right. someone who really likes right. wine. It's really a special. Yep. Um, I'm glad we liked it. All right, Beth, we're going to wrap up. If you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at sam at thegrapenation.com. That's sam at thegrapenation.com. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. I'm going to post um, all of Beth's recommendations. I'm going to post her wine list answers, and I'm going to post our weekly wine sip wine. So we'll uh, put a lot of information there. You could follow us on Instagram at SBenRuby. And you can now follow hashtags. So follow the hashtag The Grape Nation. On Twitter, we're at BenRuby and The Grape Nation. Also, subscribe to The Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Spotify, um, and Stitcher. Now, Beth we want to know more about you 
on social media or anywhere else. I am Beth Von Benz on Instagram. And I also have right, And I also have MVB Consulting. That's, That's the your name company. Of it. Absolutely. MVB. If you need not just a Greek wine specialist, but somebody who's very experienced and savvy in the business, you can talk to Beth. And you that you can go online absolutely, to MVBconsulting.com. Dot com, absolutely. Okay. Um, all right. I want to thank you for coming in. Thank we you were for able to me. pretty much get everything in. <laughs> I appreciate you being aware of that. So I want to thank our guest, Sharon Harris from Rare Cat Wines. And I want to thank Beth Von Benz from MVB Consulting. Um, thank you to our engineer, Vitor, as always. And we want to thank everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.